Good morning, church. I would invite you to stay standing. I know I'm not the normal guy, but the rules don't change. Uh, as, we, as we dive into God's word, we're in 2 Samuel 7. We're going to read 18 through 29. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever. Saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You may be seated. So good. Good morning, folks. Wow. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, My name is Max Monahan. So grateful to be here. This is what we in the youth game call uh, Big Church. This is the big leagues. If you didn't already know, I am your Folsom Church Plant Pastor. Praise God. Praise God. Today is a pretty important day. I know some of you live in the Folsom area. Um, Maybe you don't know me. You're still on the fence. That's okay. I don't blame you. The way I see it, depending on how things go today, God's going to show us uh, whether we're going to have a big church or a small church. So uh, no pressure. No pressure. Just a reminder, though, uh, for those of you who have already committed, a verbal agreement is still legally binding in the court of law. So no take backs. Just kidding, of course. But regardless, we're so excited about what the Lord is doing in the church plan already, what he will do in the Folsom area by his grace. If you're at all interested in being a part of that process, I'd love to meet you, get to know you in the lobby, by the windows, typical Pastor Scott spot. You can also sign up to get involved in the DOXA app on the homepage. There's a Folsom Church Plant button. And speaking of all that, been answering a lot of questions lately. What is the name going to be? Have you found a location? But the one that I hear more than anything is, how are you feeling? How are you feeling about all this? And to be honest, there's only one answer that comes to mind and it practically rolls off my tongue each time. I shouldn't even be here. Now to be clear, I recognize the theological error of that statement. Nothing ever occurs that wasn't supposed to occur, right? So by virtue of uh, everything works out according to the will of God, by virtue of his sovereignty, we can trust that anything that does happen was meant to. But what I really mean is I don't deserve to be here. To say I had a checkered past would be putting it mildly. And yet, in spite of all my sin, the Lord entered in and did a work in my heart by his spirit and brought me into his fold. For those of you who are also in Christ, you could probably relate. For those of you who got saved out of a place that you got yourself into but couldn't get yourself out of, well, this text, at least a portion of this text, should ring true. This one part right here. Who am I, O Lord God, that you have brought me thus far? See, when the God of the heavens and the earth, 
the one who you spent so much time and energy sinning directly against, when he shows you that unmerited, incomprehensible, utterly mind-boggling favor, what becomes far clearer than the darkness of your sin and your state is what it's contrasted against, namely the dazzling white light of the Father who loved you so much he sent his only begotten Son to die in your place. Like Moses on the mountain, you get a small glimpse of God's glory. And what's really crazy, what's really crazy is what I've just described pales in comparison to the honor that David received and the subsequent glory of God that he got to see as a result. But the good news is we kind of get to share in David's experience in a second-hand kind of way as we bask in the riches of this account. And my hope for us today is that when we all shuffle out of here to our cars to go to lunch or grandma's or wherever, David's method would stick with you and that you would go on to seek to replicate it in your own lives this week and the weeks that follow because he's worth it. So, title of the message. Title of the message, The Proper Response to the Pact. The Proper Response to the Pact. As mentioned, David's circumstance is unique. It's one of a kind. Never again will God speak to man in such a way. You're not going to hear about God making a Maxwell at Covenant. And that's a good thing. But in the meantime, while the circumstance is unique, the response is one that we can emulate in our own lives. And that's what we're after today. The big idea, there are three aspects of David's prayer of thanksgiving that you need to adopt if you want to more accurately see the magnificence of God's glory in your life. I've noticed lately we've been doing really long, big ideas, and I just wanted to jump on board. (laughs) It's really that simple, though. If we apply what we see in each of these three aspects, we're going to see God's glory better in our lives. A little historical context before we dive in. We actually got to zoom out real quick, 30,000-foot view, if you will. The Bible, like anything else, it's got a structure to it. There's a backbone And that backbone is found in the covenants that God makes with his people. A working definition for a covenant, for those of you that are new to the concept, covenants are relationships that God establishes with people on the basis of his promises. It's an agreement, yes, I'm sure you've heard that. Uh, They made a covenant, a contract, but it's bigger than that. It's a relationship, and it's based on God's promises. So there's always, always going to be a part of that covenant that will be everlasting, even when the people are not faithful. If you know the covenants well enough, it can be like a little um, you are here with the star on the mall directory as you're working through scripture, kind of uh, guideposts. It helps contextualize what you're reading. Now our time here is precious, so as much as I'd like to dive into covenants more, I'm gonna move on. But if anyone's interested, Thomas Schreiner, really small work, covenants and God's purpose for the world. Really small, really accessible, my kind of book. No pictures, though. <clears throat> Worth the read. But for us, what you'll need to know is that long before our time here in Second Samuel, about a 1,000 years prior, actually, God began a plan of redemption. And he began it with a guy named Abraham. He called him and covenanted with him. He told Abraham, follow me. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make a nation out of you and a people for myself. Your offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless anybody else who blesses you. And most importantly, I'm going to use you and your offspring to bless all the other nations of the earth. That's the Abrahamic covenant. About 500 or so years later, God made another covenant with that nation that came from Abraham's offspring, Israel. This is the Mosaic covenant or the Sinaitic covenant or the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. It's where we get the Ten Commandments. And what's that one all about? Well, Israel would receive the land... They would see fruitfulness, and they would receive that blessing promised to Abraham, their forefather, if only they would obey those Ten Commandments and remain faithful to God and God alone. It's within that context in the book of Deuteronomy that the Israelites are told what will happen if they demand a king like all the other nations. That's what ended up happening in 1 Samuel. Israel demanded a king. They got one, and he was everything that God told them that he would be. He took from them. He sought his own selfish desires, and ultimately the kingdom was divided when he finally kicked the bucket. But the concept of the king wasn't the problem. The problem was the king the people chose. They needed a king after God's own heart, which is what Chris preached about last week. 
God made a covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. That's what we just heard last week, which funneled all the previous promises through the newly established kingly line of David. The Davidic line was going to be the means for all those promises to occur. The Reader's Digest version, because I know that was a lot. God covenanted with one man in the Abrahamic covenant, from whom he raised up an entire nation to be his people. That's the Mosaic covenant. And from that nation, he just inaugurated the Davidic covenant. That's a lot, but it's really important. So now you're prepped, you're clear to learn the text. Congratulations. Point number one, the person of the promise. The person of the promise. For those of you note takers, it's not on the screen, but the verses are 18 through 22. 18 through 22. The person of the promise. That pretty much says it all. This section here, 18 through 22. Look at how these two things come up. As it pertains to the person, look at how much David refers to himself in his house. Who am I? What is my house? Your servant's house. What more can David say? You know your servant to make your servant know it. Regarding the promise, let's look at that language. You have spoken. This is instruction. Because of your promise to make your servant know it. How does he know it? God revealed it. It's a promise. According to all that we have heard with our ears, a.k.a. God spoke in the form of a promise. So that's the theme of this section here. God just finished telling David what he's going to do for him and for his house, an everlasting covenant. And David received this word from the Lord by way of Nathan the prophet. And what is the first thing he does? He goes and sits before the Lord. Presumably, this would mean he'd go into the tent before the Ark of the Covenant, the symbolic representation of God's presence on earth. And uh, listen, two things you need to know about me. Uh, I'm a visual guy. If it's written down, it's going to be hard for me to understand. Maybe you're like that too. Uh, And then also, I cling to the pulpit for dear life. So uh, don't get excited when you see me do this, but I just need you to see it. This is is what I have to picture David doing here. I'm also not a good actor, so that's the third thing, I guess. But going in before the Ark of the Covenant. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? This is the only time somebody is seated and praying in the Bible, the only instance. And we have to see that as significant. There's a reason why he does it. Thank you, yes. I sat down. (laughs) What's funny is I actually was worried about being out of breath when I got up, and so... You clapping, actually, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Can you instruct the 11 o'clock to do that as well? I need the encouragement. Um, So why does he sit? I have to believe, I mean, there's all kinds of explanations if you read the commentaries, but I have to believe this one thing. I think he's just that undone. I don't think this was a calculated move. This is a guy who was wildly dancing before the Lord in chapter six, right? I know you know what I'm talking about because you can't unsee what Pastor Scott was doing. Yeah, the whirling tempest, exactly. It's going viral on TikTok. (laughs) But I think this is just a man who is beside himself. He recognizes what God just said. And you've probably experienced something like this in your life. Have you ever seen somebody um, hear some news, receive some news that they gripped their heart so much so that their body didn't know what to do? Listen, the reason why nobody else does this is because it's typically not a show of reverence. You're supposed to be prostrate on your face or standing with your hands raised. But for David, in this moment, the rules just went out the window. I don't belabor that point to bore you with the details. I belabor that point because I'm trying to paint the picture of what David is going through, the meaning of this text. Let's look at his train of thought. Verse 18, who am I and what is my house? Translation, what makes me and my house worthy of this honor? Verse 18 continued, that you have brought me thus far. You got to picture him like recounting his whole life, his time as a lowly shepherd boy, you know, the, the youngest of eight, which means basically seven guys would have to die off in order for him to get some respect. As the supposed king of Israel, he's already been anointed, but he's on the run, 
because the other king is trying to murder him tirelessly. He lived among the Philistines, performing raids on Israel's enemies undercover, and yet here he is, the real king of Israel, finally accepting his inheritance and the recipient of a covenant with the Lord Most High. It's enough for anybody to get emotional. This is for the record where our relatability with David stops. But it continues, verse 19, and yet this was a small thing for you. Your faithfulness to me throughout my whole life, bringing me out of the shepherd pastures, delivering me from lions and bears, from the Philistine giants and kings, from Saul time after time, to bring me here to make me a king, peanuts compared to the things that you promised. Let's look at those. Verse 19 continued. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. Oh yeah, my life is going to end, but my dynasty won't. There will always be a son of David on the throne. There will be other kings, but the true king of God's promise will always bear my last name. Not that he had a last name, but... How many parents in the room? Quick question. How many parents? A lot of parents. Praise God. That's awesome. Um, I've seen some figures on children leaving the faith, abandoning the faith when they grow up. And um, even so, even more so than that, I've been with some of you. I've heard your firsthand accounts. I've seen the tears, seen grown men, men weep over their wayward children. Now, unfortunately, he's not promising David that all of his children will be saved or walk the righteous path. In fact, a lot of them are actually going to be really messed up. But you love your children. How many of you would like to hear a promise like this for your children, that the Lord has plans like this for your family? How moving that would be. But again, it continues. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Odd sentence, worth understanding. That word instruction, that's the word Torah, the word law in the Hebrew. In other words, this thing that God spoke of is actually a word for all mankind, not just a promise for him and his family. What David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying here is that he knows that this promise isn't just for him and his progeny. It's going to be the very means the Lord uses to bless all mankind, spoken of in the Abrahamic covenant. And we know, we know what that means right here, Right? Somebody want to give me the safe Sunday school answer? Jesus. That's right. I don't know if David had Jesus exactly in mind, but he didn't know that God's plan of redemption for all mankind was now going to come through his line. And you can imagine how that made him feel. Actually, you don't have to. Look at verse 20. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord Yahweh. He's at a loss for words. You can just see him getting hyped, listing all these things. To me, to my family, and to all mankind. God, you know. You know what I mean. And all of this, verse 21, according to your promise and according to your heart, you brought about this greatness to reveal it to me. Conclusion, verse 22, therefore, you are great, O Lord, Yahweh. There is none like you, no God besides you, according to your promise. David is face to face with God's faithfulness to him. And all he can determine in light of God's great acts in his life, God is the great one. And there's something to this. When we see what the Lord has delivered us from, when we see what he has promised for us in our future, we can't help but marvel. We can't help but say, who am I Oh, Lord God. There's a humility produced that causes us to see him for who he is. So let's get practical, right? We're here to apply God's word to our lives. How has the Lord demonstrated faithfulness in your life? Anybody have any near-death experiences? You don't have to raise your hand for these, for the record. Anybody have any near-death experiences? Anybody have kids they prayed for after walking through seasons of miscarriages and trying and failing? perhaps years of that struggle. Anybody get saved from addiction? Anybody miraculously pay their mortgage or rent when it didn't seem possible? Anybody get saved to Jesus Christ? Anybody have oxygen in your lungs? 
You think you're doing that for yourself? That's God being faithful to you, even if you're not being faithful to him. Recount God's faithfulness in your life. You will conclude that he is great. Surely there is no other. And speaking of God being the only one, what nation is like his people, Israel? Point number two, the people and the purpose. The people and the purpose. We saw the person of the promise. David and whichever son of his would sit on the throne thereafter were the recipients of that promise. But Jesus would come from the line of David, who was the true object of that promise. He wasn't just the person of the promise. He was the promised person, if you will. All of this being revealed to David caused him to reflect on past promises being fulfilled and look forward to future fulfillments. It caused him to praise God for his greatness his uniqueness, which made him also consider God's people. Again, we see the two topics in our header all throughout this section. Your people Israel, the one nation whom God went to redeem. Why? To make them his people, making himself a name, driving out before his people, whom whom he redeemed for himself, established for himself. You see the purpose here? His people Israel, to be his people forever and become and became their God. If it's not clear already, God raised up Israel for the sake of his name. And if you didn't already know this, we sang a lot about names today uh, and praise God for his name because when God reveals his name to his people, think the burning bush um, and other accounts as well, even when he talks to Abraham, he actually reveals himself. God's name and who he is are intrinsically linked. In the last section, David spoke in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. But here, the language is ripped straight from the proverbial pages of the Mosaic covenant. Listen to what Moses says to the Israelites in recounting the details of the Mosaic covenant. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God chose the Israelites as his people. He redeemed them. He established them. He made them his people. And even the last part, and you, O Lord, became their God. You'll notice it doesn't say that they made him their God. He became their God. God did all the work. And he did it all that his name might be glorified. And that they might be a light to the neighboring nations. Displaying his goodness. Because if you're going to see anything in this section by looking at the people of God and his purpose in choosing them, let it be God's goodness. In the last part, we we beheld God's greatness in our lives through the person of the promise. But let's consider his goodness seen in his people and his purpose. Now you can see it here in a doctrine that I understand is not the most comfortable subject for some of you. But it's in our text, so we're not going to skirt around it. I'm talking about the doctrine of election. God chose a man in Abraham. He chose a people in Israel. He chose David and his line And he chose every saint who would call upon the name of Jesus in repentance and faith too. David makes it very clear why God chose Israel. For his own sake. Which to a great degree should take all of our questioning off the table, right? Why did God do it? For his purposes. For his glory. Why does God choose? That's why. But if that's not a good enough reason, let's just take a look at the the manner in which he brings the people to himself. Verse 23. God himself went to redeem them. He did so by driving out an entire other nation and its gods from before them. He redeemed them. In other words, he purchased them for himself out of slavery and established them as his special people forever. This isn't a God who is mean or vindictive. This is a God who enters into the muck and mire of our lives and plucks us out of the messes we get ourselves into and sets us upon the rock. If you're that person who struggles with that doctrine, listen, I understand. I have a list as long as my arm of loved ones that I'm praying for would come to repentance and faith in Jesus. 
I'd do anything to see him come to salvation. I don't know if that's where you're at with it, but I would just caution you not to project, project your hurt over their state onto God over the way in which he does things. This is a good God, a loving God. And I believe that if you can accept it, this doctrine is actually proof of his goodness. Because truth be told, none of us deserves grace. Not one of us was awesome enough in our own merit, in our own right to merit his intervention. And we actually deserve the opposite. In order to see that though, we have to really see God for how holy he is. He is set apart, he is perfect. There is no injustice in him. There is no deviation from truth. He is completely unlike us to the degree that we don't even have a frame of reference outside of his word. We can hold up no other human being and say, that's what God's like. And we sinned against him. Our sin, I can't even describe what our sin is to a holy God like that, a perfect God like that. The, the depth of the darkness of that stain. That created enmity between us and God. A God who created us, who raised us up for his glory to dwell with him forever, we sinned against, turned our back on him. And rather than leaving us there, which would have been totally okay, totally understandable, he would have been totally just in that. He sent his son Jesus Christ down to earth. God himself took on flesh. Would you abandon heaven to save a bunch of people that didn't even want you? born of the virgin, lived a perfect, righteous life, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the Mosaic Covenant, like we mentioned earlier. He was betrayed. He willingly went to his own death for our sake, to save us. He died the death we deserved to die, a brutal, humiliating death. But he rose again three days later, conquering death for the believer conquering the power of sin for the believer, conquering the power that Satan has for the believer. He lives to intercede for you even now if you are in Christ, continuing to make intercession for you in your sins. And all it takes is repentance and faith in him. Repentance, turning from your old way of life, saying, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to sin like that against you, God. I recognize my sin for what it is. I want to do it your way. I recognize what Jesus did in his person and work. It's good news. So what do we do with this? If you are in Christ, my challenge to you is to consider the God, consider how God chose you since before the foundation of the world. Remember that. Not because you were awesome. Consider deeply the weight of your sin and the offense it must, it must have been to your creator. Not to make you feel bad. Promise you that's not my desire. Far from it. But rather, so that you might see the surpassing goodness of God. That you would see the magnitude of his patience toward you and the links that he went, he went to in order to draw you to himself how he met you right where you were at. That Christ died for you while you were still a sinner. Marvel at the goodness of God. And if you are not a believer, perhaps God is doing that work in your heart right now. If that's the case, my challenge to you is this. Don't shake it off. Don't wait until later. Don't revisit it at another time. If you came with a Christian, say something. Ask some questions. There will be some dedicated uh, uh, prayer warriors up here after I preach, and you can talk to them. Come talk to me. It would make my day to dive into this with you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Point number three, the petition for perpetuity. I like my peas. I spend a lot of time on the um, site called wordhippo.com. They got a lot of synonyms on there. It was a requirement, actually. The elders were like, can you alliterate? Scott's like, oh, he can alliterate. Here we are. So it did it. <laughs> Nothing else. Just kidding. Um, verses 25 through 29. I feel like I got to say that because it's not up there. Verses 25 through 29. Here we see the climax of David's prayer. 
He's reflected on God's promise to him and to his progeny, which will eventually culminate in Jesus, the ultimate Davidic king. He's reflected on God's goodness and the purposes behind the choosing of his people. And here it all crescendos in David's petition for perpetuity. He calls upon the Lord to do exactly what he said he was going to do. And he calls upon him to do it um, in the words of, uh, I can't remember the kid's name, but Sandlot, you know, forever. (laughs) This first chunk starts with rehearsing our two previous sections, all the while working in our current theme. Verse 25, confirm forever the word you have spoken, promise, concerning your servant and his house, person, and do as you have spoken, promise. Verse 26, and your name will be magnified forever, purpose, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, people. It's almost like God wrote this book, right? So cool. So this confirm forever is actually an imperative in the original language. If you're not familiar with what that means, it means David is actually commanding the Lord to do it. At first blush, that seems a little sketchy, right? but we get our key to understanding it in verse 27. David says, because you have revealed all of this to me, you have given me courage to pray this prayer to you. This isn't David being too big for his britches. It's actually him believing God at his word so seriously that he has the faith and boldness to command it because he believes wholeheartedly that it's gonna happen. What faith? And this actually coincides with the posture that we've seen up to this point. Remember when he sat down? I mean, I know you remember that because I didn't get winded, right? Um, he sat down before the Lord when maybe he should have kneeled. Remember when he was at a loss for words in verse 20? That theme continues, verse 28. The construction of this sentence here actually suggests that he interrupts his own train of thought just to make sure he expresses him correctly, himself correctly. And now, oh Lord God, hold up, hold up, sorry God. You are God and your words are true and don't forget you promised I didn't just act on my own. Therefore, for this reason, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. I just love his heart here. If you've been paying attention, the first section used language um, extremely similar to the Abrahamic covenant. The second section, well, that was language that was brought in from the Mosaic covenant. And here we are in this last section, and David is calling upon the Lord to fulfill his promises in the Davidic covenant. But not only that, this forever language. Well, it's got me thinking about a different covenant, the new covenant, inaugurated by Jesus, the true Davidic king, offspring of Abraham, fulfiller of the Mosaic covenant. See, it too contains future promises, much like all the other promises. So with that in mind, Dear brothers and sisters, my challenge to you is this. As we reflect upon God's faithfulness in our lives in order to see his greatness, as we reflect on God's sovereign election in order to see his goodness, let us also live our lives as those who are looking ahead to a future forever in the presence of God's glory, his greatness, his goodness, and his glory. Recall what Paul said in Romans. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And again in 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal forever. Yes and amen. We who are in Christ get to celebrate communion with our God in the here and now. But let us live lives as those who have hope in something far greater on the horizon. When our king will return and we will dine with him in paradise. When he drinks of the fruit of the vine and we begin eternity in his presence. Our glorious, glorious God. Let's pray to him now. Father God. Your word is unbelievable. I am a, I'm just in awe of you, Lord. And I just pray that if, if people leave out of here with anything, God, that it would just be a glimpse of your glory. Lord, I pray that they would see you in the riches of your word for who you are. I pray that they would reflect on past 
faithfulness. I pray that they would look toward future fulfillments of your promises, God. We long for that day, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. What a day that will be. Lord, we don't even have a frame of reference for a life without sin. We've been marred by sin from the womb, and we'll see that until the day of our death. But when we see you, we will be transformed. We will see you as you are, and we will become that which we were meant to be. Perfect in your perfect, glorious, holy presence, Lord. Can't wait for that glory, God. We love you. We dedicate all these things to you. In your son, Jesus Christ, mighty name we pray. Amen.